welcome to Grace Life Church Podcast. If you would like any more information about us, please visit our website, gracelife.com.au. So we're talking, uh, continuing our series in Nehemiah, and today we're in Nehemiah chapter 9, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, which I left on my desk. So I'm going to do what most of you are doing and open up an app as well. Um, no, I'll be good. Use the right translation this way, you know. So I want to talk today about identity. Uh, I'm not used to navigating this one. There we go. Nehemiah, I keep thinking it's in the prophets for some reason and it's in the books of history. Anyway, there we go. So, in The Lion King, talking about Africa, uh, anyone seen The New Lion King? A few of you? I'm, I'm going to stay a purist, not give in to Disney commercialism. Uh, but Simba, we know the story of Simba. If you've seen The Lion King, we know the story of Simba, the young lion cub who uh, is a bit naughty. And, and because he's a bit naughty and goes where he shouldn't, his father dies and he runs away. And he tries his hardest to forget his past. And on the whole, he actually succeeds. He um, falls in with a couple of rapscallions who, uh, who think it's kind of handy having a lion on their side and pretty much forgets about his past. And then at, at some point, meanwhile, back in, in the Pride Lands, it's, it's gone to horrible because his evil uncle has taken over. Um, and the shaman baboon Rafiki through whatever shamans do, realises it's time. And he goes and, and finds Simba. And Simba's kind of reluctant to go back to the Pride Lands and face his past and face his uncle. I mean, he's onto a good thing where, where he is. And at some point, Rafiki says to him, your problem is you don't even know who you are. <laughs> Can I go to Africa or do I have to stay home? <laughs> Okay, I think you just offended all the Indians as well. Um, he doesn't know who he is, he's forgotten who he is. Identity. Identity is such a big issue in our culture and there's a lot of confusion over identity. I think a lot of people don't know who we are. With the rise of individualism, uh, which has become stronger and stronger. So individual, the idea of uh, me as an individual and me being an autonomous person and sort of the centre of my universe is only a few hundred years old. It rose up with the Enlightenment uh, in the 17, 1600s and it's just sort of gained momentum since then. And, and the problem is that when we start to think individualistically about myself in isolation from other people, we start to lose who we are. And, and so we see this huge issue in our culture. Everywhere you look, people seem to be on a search to try and discover who they are. Uh, and sometimes that is literally a journey. They just pack up, leave everything and, and go to find it. But we, we find people with gender is no longer about how you're born, 
It's about how you identify and, oh, you know, and so we have all this confusion over gender. Now, there is genuine gender confusion in, in some cases. Garfield could tell you about that. But by and large, what we're dealing with in society is, is not a, a, a psychological issue. It's actually an ideological issue that's based in nothing except ideology and leading to confusion, leading to abuse uh, of children in some cases. Our society is lost. We've forgotten who we are. Um, the rise of identity politics, uh, if you've heard that term, and, and what group I identify with and then we're at each other and if you identify with the wrong group, then you're sort of on the outer, uh, depending what circles you move in. And, and incidentally, I've, I've noticed just through my interaction with people on the internet and stuff, but both sides actually feel really threatened by the other. I am assuming most of us here, I know not all of us, but most of us here would identify more on the conservative, but, you know, and, and we feel quite um, threatened by the left, and, you know, I think there are things we need to keep an eye on, but, you know, people on the left feel con threatened by conservatives as well. And we have this huge divide, um, and, and we sort of plant our identity in these groups, and, uh, you know, th I don't know, things just go wrong in our society. It's just, uh, identity is such a big issue. If you've missed the last couple of weeks, I just want to recap where we're up to. We've, we've as I said, been looking through the book of Nehemiah. And, and the background to Nehemiah, if you're not aware of it, is uh, Israel, uh, the people of God, uh, had been carted off into Babylon some 80 or 90 years previous to where we're up to, and had largely lost or... Babylon tried to get them to lose their identity. But after 70 years in captivity, a new government arose, the Persians took over the Babylonians and they actually had a policy of nations returning and rediscovering their identity, so to speak. And so the Israelites had returned home to Israel, uh, they were encouraged to practice their religion again and to re-establish their culture, but the Israelites get home from exile and they discover everything has changed. They'd come home, but it no longer felt like home. And in fact, for the faithful Israelites, in some ways it had never been like home. We read the story of the Old Testament and because we're reading it from a covenant perspective, because the story of the Old Testament is a story of Israel in relation to the covenant, but a lot of people just didn't live in the covenant. There were still um, the Canaanites who they'd never fully driven out of the land there. Uh, there were people who kept falling away. And so when we read about faithful Israelites in the Old Testament, we're often reading about a minority. And then to compound this, we get these exiles who've had to grapple with, who, in exile in a foreign country, who am I as uh, the people of God? Who are we as the people of God? They come back in and part of the Babylonian um, exercise was they, they would take people out of their own country but then they'd move other people in and so you've just got this cultural whatever, I don't know, something, mix up and, and they come home but they don't feel like they're home, had a pagan government, the Persians oversaw it, uh, had pagan customs that had become the norm and even with a faithful, proactive Hebrew governor like Nehemiah, they still faced political opposition from without and they're facing compromise from within. 
And so they had to find ways to negotiate this new reality. And where we're up to, uh, Nehemiah came in, so just about 13 years prior to this, Ezra had come, the temple had been rebuilt, Ezra the Levite had come, sort of re-established the law, and then Nehemiah was hearing about the wall of Jerusalem hadn't, was still destroyed, and Jerusalem, their holy city, part of their identity, so he comes, gets permission to come, they've just finished rebuilding the wall, and in chapter 8 last week, we saw they start re-engaging with the law. And this hasn't happened, this happened under Ezra, uh, but this is a fresh engagement again and they're digging into the Scripture and discovering that their way of life isn't in accordance with the Word of God. And so they're asking, what does it mean for us to faithfully live out an authentic Hebrew identity? It's an identity that's grounded in being Yahweh's people in a world that's so different to what they knew, uh, what God had intended. A world that in some cases was quite hostile to who they were. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Sometimes? We live in a world that seems hostile to us. You know, it's not always that the world is hostile to us, it's not that the world hates us, it's just that sometimes the values and identities and and the divide is so great that while people may not be hostile, our ways of life start to clash, our values start to clash and, and the inevitable result is that something's going to have to give or, you know, we get into um, hostility. But that's what I want to look at today is how do we faithfully live out our identity as God's people in the face of a culture that's hostile to that identity and it's not just living it out but actually how do we maintain that identity because that's what was the threat for the Israelites is that they lose themselves, that's what Babylon had been about and that's what they're facing even back in their own home. And so we read at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, on the 24th day of the month, verse 1, the Israelites assembled and they were fasting, wearing sackcloth and had put dust on their heads, this is a sign of deep contrition, I don't know if you've ever worn sackcloth, I've never tried it but I imagine it's really uncomfortable, taking off your nice clothes, you know, they're just um, humbling, humiliating themselves. And then it says in verse 2, those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners. Sounds a little bit prejudiced or something, doesn't it? Has anyone done first aid? Yep, good bunch of you, great, so I'm okay if I have an accident. What, can you remember, what's the first thing, if you arrive onto an accident scene or you find someone and you don't know the, the background, what's the first thing you do, can you remember? Check for danger? Yeah, you check for danger. There's no use trying to resuscitate someone if they're still connected to a live PowerPoint. You're going to damage yourself and it's going to be futile helping them. And the people realised that the first thing they needed to do was if they were going to be faithful to God, if they were going to maintain their identity, was they had to separate themselves from the things that compromised that identity. I don't think this was about cultural superiority, 
or being snobby or anything like this. This was about protecting themselves, about maintaining who they were. They had to separate themselves. But there was another reason they had to separate themselves as well, not just protecting themselves. The fact is that what they were about to be about was family business. They were about to renew the covenant. And God had given the covenant to the Israelites. He hadn't given it to the pagans. No one else was subject to the obligations that the Israelites were were subject to. And just frankly, it wouldn't have made sense to have all these foreigners in on on what they were doing it it would have just been weird Um, it was the Israelites who had broken covenant with God and it was the Israelites that had to fix it we live in an age as I said where more and more of our values and beliefs between God's people and those outside the church are coming into conflict with one another and we struggle as Christians sometimes to know how to deal with that and we can either go two ways one is we can go the way of compromise and you know sometimes we have uh, well we make excuses for that missional we want to reach the world whatever so sometimes we can come a little bit too much like the world like the people we're hanging out with but sometimes we go the other way and we can kind of become like moral policemen for society I think both of these extremes are wrong. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 12, I'm putting references up there because I want you to actually look. And anyway, I won't go there. I've got things about having too much slides. Um, I'll be preaching about the wrong thing. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 12, Paul says to the Corinthians, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, otherwise you'd have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Wow, that's a bit scary from a church point of view, isn't it? If someone's claiming to be a Christian and acting like this, don't associate with them. And we know from elsewhere in the letter, he actually expelled the immoral brother. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business, get this, what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. We can't leave the world and God doesn't want us to leave the world. Jesus said, you're salt and light. We're a city on the hill that can't be hidden. But there are conversations that we simply just don't make sense to people outside. They're going to misconstrue it. They're not going to hear love. They're going to hear hate. It's like telling a joke and saying, I'm not a racist, but, and then telling a racist joke. Well, you either are or you're not. It's like in our day and age, let's just say tweeting a verse that might sound homophobic to people outside the church and then saying, I love you. It might be true, but it's terribly unhelpful. 
It doesn't make sense to people. Why is it that we feel we need to judge people outside the church before, with, with our Christian standards, before we've even introduced them to Jesus? You know, the fact of the matter is, we can't live up to our own standards. Let's not judge people outside it. We need to separate ourselves sometimes just to do family business so that we can maintain our own identity, so that we can try and work out this Christian life and these ethics that we struggle so much with together without causing confusion out there so that our light can shine more brightly and people can see the life-transforming love of God by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. How do we do this? If it doesn't mean abandoning the world and it doesn't mean judging the world, what does it mean for us? We can't remove ourselves from the world, but here's what we do. We remove the world from our hearts. Pretty simple. Nehemiah's the story of building a wall. And you know one of the things about walls? You build a wall to separate things. Walls are all about keeping things outside the city out and keeping the people inside the city safe. Do you know we live in a walled city as Christians? We have a wall. Revelation 21, 9 to 14, listen to this. I don't think this is about the future. I know a lot of Christians think it's at the end of Revelation, it's about the future. I think this is about the present. Then one of the seven angels who had, been, who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. What's the bride of the Lamb? Church. He then carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the Holy Spirit. I'm going to show you the bride of the Lamb. Here it is. It looks like the Holy City. The Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory, this is us. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south and three on the west. And the city wall had 12 foundations and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The church is the New Jerusalem. It's talking about us. And what's around the city is a wall. And what's on the gates and the foundations of those cities? The 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. This is talking about the Word of God. We surround ourselves with the Word, the Old Testament, Israel, the New Testament, the Apostles. And we separate ourselves from the world through this filter called the Word. We separate ourselves from the wor world, but we don't just separate ourselves in our hearts, I'm talking about, from the world, but we also separate ourselves unto God through the world, now uh, through the Word. So what does the separation actually look like? Well, just think for a moment the different parts of your life and how that might apply. We have work, we have family, uh, we have entertainments, perhaps there are other things in your life that you need to think about, but I, want to, I just want to highlight two. The first one I want to highlight is relationships. 
particularly because that's what the Hebrews here realised, we've got to separate ourselves from the foreigners in, in, in this moment. In your life, are there relationships that compromise who you are, that cause you to lose or to not live out your Christian identity? There's a lot of relationships that will always challenge us, but do you lose yourself in those? When I was 13, uh, I was in Army Cadets for a year and my first year of high school, absolutely loved Army Cadets, it was great. Most of the time it was pretty good, but we had a week-long camp um, at one of the Army bases that used to be out at Northam and something flipped in me that weekend, I just wanted to be one of the boys. And, uh, you know, they all knew I was Christians, but that week, that week, man, I, I was not a Christian. I tell you, I, it was weird. So, I was using bad language and joining in their jokes and that sort of thing. Something somewhere along the line must have flipped back, because I remember sitting on a tree stump one day and these guys came up to me and they said, swear. And I'm like, I'm not going to. They said, well, you did before. And, and I'm like, what, what had happened to me in that week? I had, I was, I had let myself get into this place where... I just lost my identity, I forgot who I was momentarily. And so, we need to ask ourselves in these relationships, am I doing the influencing or am I being the influencer? Which way is the identity flowing here? This isn't about judging others, I mean, it'll be taken as judging others. Uh, whenever you act out of holiness, evil is going to arc up and, and there's good and evil in everyone evil is going to arc up. But it's, it's not about us judging, it's about us being authentic, true to who God has made us. There's other things, perhaps there's affections, loves, things that, that we need to separate ourselves from. Maybe TV shows, maybe books or video games. You might say, oh, that's pretty legalistic, Alex, you know, we, we're free in Jesus. Yes, we are, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, everything is permissible. There it is, everything is permissible. Again, this isn't about law, this is, but he says, not everything is beneficial. And this is about, I'm talking about identity, being true, authentic to who we are. Are there things that you do that you love? And look, I've got, there are things that I love um, and things that I've just had to say, I can't do that. Uh, because it's not who I am, it's not who I want to be, it's not who Jesus made me to be. So, do you need to separate yourself from something or someone to protect your identity? Now, separation, the problem with separation, if that's where we leave it at, and a lot of people do, and they become really horrible people to be around, because when you separate yourself from something, particularly the from something, you're taking something away, and you leave a vacuum and when you leave a vacuum it's going to be filled with something else and if you don't fill it with something positive it's going to get filled with something negative and you've defeated the exercise. The people very quickly move on to positive and one of the things that they fill it with is their story. You see this prayer of confession, we're not going to read the whole thing but what they do in this prayer of confession is they tell their story and they talk about who God is, what God's done for them and who they are in that story and it's, that last one's not very uh, pretty. Uh, verse 5, the second half of verse 5, blessed be the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting, 
Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and all the stars of heaven worship you. You, the Lord, are, and here we come into the story, you, the Lord, are the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and changed his name to Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites and all the ites, to give it to his descendants. You have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. This is what you've done, God. And it goes on through that. And then it goes on and on and talking about what God done. And then it's talking about what they've done. And we get to the end of uh, this. Let's just go down to 36 because it sort of summarizes it. Nehemiah 9.36, here we are today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings. You have set over us, uh, you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. They tell this story and they're brutally honest about this story. I think part of the reason they tell their story is story is really wrapped up with identity. Think about all the things, the stories. I want to go and see Danger Close on, on the weekend because it's a story, part of an Australian story about the Vietnam War. Story, communicates. so much of our history is communicated through story. I do a lot of funerals and the centre of a funeral service is the story of the person who's died. I love telling those sorts of stories. There's some fascinating people out there. The life of Jesus, or, or Jesus himself, is not presented as a series of teachings, but as a story that contains teachings. Even when the Israelites were given the law with the thousand and the thou shalt nots and all about the sacrifices and everything, that's framed within a story. It's not just this, this is what you're going to do, drops out of heaven, but as they are redeemed and as they travel in the wilderness, uh, this, these laws are given as part of their story. If you take away someone's story, you take away a large part of their identity and it's what the Babylonians have tried to do with the Israelites and all the other nations, we want to take away your story and, and just give you the Babylonian story. In that case, it backfired because God was on their side. said at the start people are on a, a search for identity and, and very often this is trying to find out their story um, and if you're young that's really hard because your story's only just begun. I'm 50 and I'm just starting to figure mine out but here's the thing, we don't have to do it alone because one of the things that forms my identity and forms my story is our identity and our story. My story is part of our story, which is framed by his story. And when I see myself, I may not have my story figured out yet, but man, I'm not lost. I know my story because his story is my story. Your story is my story. And when I know where I belong, I know who I am. Our identity is communicated and formed through our story, so we need to connect deeply with our story. One of the ways the Jews did this was through the annual feasts they had. 
So a big one was Passover and that told the story of their uh, God freeing them from Egypt. But another one we saw last week, they rediscovered uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or Shelters or whatever it's going to put in there, uh, what, what you have, they've rediscovered that because that tells the story of their time in the desert uh, as they wander through the wilderness to the promised land. We need to tell our story. How do we do that? Can you think of ways that we do that as Christians, to tell our story that reinforce our identity? Testimony, communion, Easter and Christmas celebrations. You know, communion, Easter, Christmas, oh, we're doing that again, I've heard it all before. Same songs. Yeah, but they reinforce our story to us. We celebrate who we are through this. And Christmas carols are starting to dissolve a little bit. We were a time where people were invited to come into that story, at least for a moment. And it's an amazing story, isn't it? It's a humbling story. Like Nehemiah's, uh, the, the Israelites there in Nehemiah, it's a story, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was dead, but Jesus gave his life for me so that I can have life. And he brought me into his family. And if you really want to strengthen your identity in Christ, then we need to get in touch with our story. We need to soak in it. We need to read it. Remember, Scott just said, I can spend an hour, I can, I've got till one o'clock, because the Israelites spent, well, they spent half a day, they were spending whole days listening to the Word of God. And that wasn't just listening to laws, that was listening to their story. Soak in the story, make it your story, tell it, retell it. If you've got kids, tell it to your kids. Celebrate it with other Christians. Invite others into it. And don't let anyone take it away from you. Own it. Own the gospel story. Own the story of Israel. We're being grafted into Israel. It's part of our story. The third thing that they do is they make a new covenant, an agreement with God, or they renew it. They're not making a new one, really. They're renewing an old one. I've called it stipulation because I needed something that started with S. Um, but really, this is actually about lifestyle. Uh, this part of the, the, the covenant was very practical and this is how they're going to live. So much of, of the Old Testament covenant was based around their relationship with God. It wasn't so much a moral code as uh, this is who you are and as a result of your relationship with God, this is how... Uh, it's you're meant to live. So, we talk about faith and works. Works is always the outflow of faith. And if you don't live out of an, a sense of identity, if you just live out of a set of rules, it's, it's really quite pointless actually. There's no point doing that. It's meaningless. There were things that they could and couldn't do that were different to the surrounding people because of their relationship with God. Um, some of these had to do with sin, of course, but a great many of them didn't. There were things they just did that were different. They treated the Hebrew slaves differently because they were their brothers and sisters and they were all the people of God. Um, they could and couldn't eat, well, they couldn't eat certain foods. That's like, that's not really a moral issue. It was just to identify them as holy and remember who they were. Temple worship, 
it was there strongly to establish your identity. These aren't about sin or morality. These are about identity and being the people of God. And so Nehemiah and the people highlighted three things that uh, we can, well, they highlight a number of things that we can sum up in three areas. And these represented a very proactive assertion of their identity. These are things we can't just sort of do in our, our bedroom and, you know, have our quiet time and then not let anyone know we're a Christian. They're actually part of their life. The first had to do with family. Um, they agreed, let's read uh, chapter 10, verse 30. So, the rest of that's all preamble, they're going to make a covenant. And then, we will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. They'd actually agreed to this 13 years earlier under Ezra. They'd actually sent their foreign wives and families away and something had gone and they'd forgotten about that covenant and so they come and, um, and renew it. They realised how much mixed marriages were compromising their identity. You remember, those of you who have been following along, we, we read about the uh, opposition that Tobiah and some of the others we're bringing some to buy the Ammonite and you know some Arab and to buy had such a hold on them because so many of them had married into his family and he was like the family patriarch and they had to do in that culture what he said they compromised themselves through marriage and so what they agreed to do let me contextualize this is that they agree they're only going to marry other Christians even if it meant, and the reason they would compromise themselves with those sorts of um, marriages with non-Christian families is because there's a, a political or power benefit in there. They were arranged marriages and, and there was a lot of politics in, in marriage, it wasn't about romance, uh, at least for the upper echelons of society. Um, so, they weren't going to marry non-Christians, even if it was expedient to do, even if their son or daughter really, really loves that pagan, not going to do it. And so, in only marrying other faithful Israelites, the people ensured united households, or a better chance of united households, strong, and that strong identity and values would be passed on to the next generation. You know, family is one of the key places the enemy has always targeted and continues to target today. Um, from domestic abuse uh, to undermining parental authority, you can, I don't need to tell you. Let's not help the enemy along by making it difficult for us, by starting to fragment ourselves and, and set up these identity conflicts uh, with our closest relationships. And so, whether you're single, whether you're looking for a partner, whether you're married, whether you're, you have kids, here's what we do and here's how we gauge Particularly if you're not married, how you gauge is, is someone you might be dating, right, is can you put Jesus at the centre of that relationship? Can, there's more to it obviously than just faith, but, but if you can't do this and just walk away, if you can't have Jesus at the centre of your conversations, because you're going to have to compromise your identity a time and time again in that relationship. Now, I know some of you are married to unbelievers. What do I do if I'm married to an unbeliever? Well, God is gracious and, you know, the Bible says that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. Your prayers are powerful, your witness 
is powerful. Okay, so take heart. But in as much as we can, let's um, try to build uh, strong families through those relationships. The second thing they target... Thanks, iPad. ...is the Sabbath. This is really challenging for us as Christians because we're no longer under the law and, um, you know, what do we do with this? For the Jews, it was quite simple. It went to the heart of Jewish identity. In fact, when God was giving the law, someone broke the Sabbath and they were stoned for it, put to death. God was saying, look, this is really, really serious. Why, why is having a day off such a big deal to God? And the reason is it's not just about a day off. It's actually about worship. The reason the Jews consistently broke the Sabbath was they wanted to trade on the Sabbath. And, you know, when we take a Sabbath and have a break from commerce and that sort of thing, we're saying, Yahweh is God, Jesus is God, not money, not mammon. In fact, I'm going to give up money so that I can have God. That sends a powerful... Uh, Sign. If I can just have a proud dad moment, I haven't run this pastor, so my daughter uh, has been working Sundays and consequently hasn't been able to come to church or help with kids' church. She said she went and changed her shift to a lower paying, you know, with penalty rates and everything, Saturday shift, so that she can help at church. Isn't that... I'm, I'm happy with that. So, you didn't have to cheer, but I'm like... But that's the cost, I'm talking about the cost and the identity, uh, the cost that comes with identity and being one of God's people. These are the sorts of choices we have to make. It's a challenge for us. Like I say, we're not obligated to do this anymore, but the principle remains. Here, show me your wallet or your, you know, your accounts, bank accounts, show me your diary and I'll tell you what's important to you. I'll tell you what's God. I didn't realize I thought you were helping in there, Abby. I've just embarrassed you. Um, I'll tell you what's important to you. What do we communicate to our kids when we say work, sport, those sorts of things are more important than church? You don't have to come to, be a chur uh, to church to be a Christian, but, you know, we've just been talking about identity. Look, you've got to work this out for yourself. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Uh, sometimes we don't have a choice. Maybe you've got a job where you have to work Sundays occasionally. And obviously, look, I'm preaching to the converted, you're all here. But <laughs> consider how your use of time and the Sabbath reinforces or weakens your identity and what it teaches our kids about the importance of God in the way we Sabbath or don't. Finally, the Hebrews identify the temple as needing their attention. And again, temple was central to their identity um, because the temple was where they went to meet God. This was heaven on earth. That's what the temple meant. And so they decide as you read on, so I, I haven't been reading the verses anyway, as you read on, they, they're going to supply the wood for the sacrifices, they're going to bring the first field, fruits of their fields. Uh, bringing the wood was something new. Uh, the first fruits of the fields was something that was in the law and so was tithing. Um, and these are both uh, stipulations in the law they have to follow, but they're also acts of worship. And, uh, and so they're going to renew 
this sense of worship and this sense of identity when the temple got destroyed by the Babylonians oh that was devastating it was over you know when a temple got destroyed in those days what it meant meant that the God of the invading army was stronger than your God Uh, so that was devastating for them and they're going to tend to the the temple because their identity is wrapped up with here because this is all about God we have a temple love metaphors we are the temple Paul says in Ephesians 2 21 22 we are the temple we're living stones in the temple and how better do we recognize that than when we come together when we come together and we say yes we want to meet with our God not because we need to come into a building not because he's not with me by the Holy Spirit but because that's who we are that's our identity and when we all get together God comes among us in a more powerful way that something happens because we are his body together the the body the temple has local expressions uh, Grace Life is not the temple, we're part of the temple but it has local expressions and look, for it to work, we need, all need to pitch in. You know, when you come to church, you're not doing Pastor Josh or Pastor Scott or myself or anyone else a favour, you're just being who you are. We do not own this church, the elders steward the church on your behalf and, and for God but this is your church. And what happens here is going to depend on how each of the living stones in the temple contributes. And so when we come and we contribute our effort out there on morning tea or in kids' church, or when we tithe, uh, whatever it is we do, when we come to worship, we're reinforcing our identity as God's people, as, as Christ's people. Do you know who you are? How do you know who you are? God has made us His people through Jesus Christ, so let's live out that identity by doing some very practical things and some very difficult things, separating ourselves in our hearts, separating ourselves from the world, having different attitudes, building that wall of the the Word around us. Uh, Let's live in the story. Again, through the Word, recite it, live in it and let's live out the practices that the lifestyle that celebrate and remind us of our identity. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast from Grace Life Church. For more information about us or any of our services, please visit our website at gracelife.com.au.